On this week's episode of the Shut Up and Build Bikes podcast, I share my interview with Paul Brody in Vancouver, Canada. Each week on the Shut Up and Build Bikes podcast, I get on the phone, I talk to somebody in the bike frame building world, and this week it's Paul Brody. In 1986, he started Brody Bicycles in Vancouver, and he built that company uh, for the next decade or so, and then eventually sold it and went on to do work in um, making like custom motorcycles, and then uh, eventually got back into, around 2010, teaching custom frame building and he's been doing that uh since then um, with some other projects and things thrown in uh it's pretty cool you know he built a pretty big uh, and successful and influential early mountain biking and you know this cycling company uh and then uh you know more recently i think in the time that i've been interested in frame building i've heard a lot about the classes that he teaches and the impact that he's had on all sorts of people especially uh frame builders in canada uh you know that's i think like the class of choice for a lot of them uh but of course from other places too uh, anyway, so it's really cool to talk to him. Some of the stuff he did with motorcycles is really interesting. Uh, and so we get into all that sort of stuff in this interview. I hope you enjoy it as much as I did. Well, I was driving a cab for four years and then I, I got a, a position in a bicycle shop. I started assembling Apollo Sport 10s, which is the all steel road bike, really cheap. And I kind of worked my way up a little bit through the shop, and I, I became the handyman. And then there was Rocky Mountain in the back of the shop. Rocky Mountain was a really early company. It was a wholesale company, and they were importing Italian clothing and, and Gucciotti frames out of Italy. And then they bought the Norman Hill uh, frame building shop out in Richmond, and they had a frame builder out there. His name is is Derek Bailey and they didn't have a painter so they approached me and said would you like to paint frames and I said well I don't know anything about painting frames and they said well we don't know anybody else so I went out there and I taught myself how to how to paint frames I'm just largely self-taught and then once I was out there I I definitely realized that I had an interest in making frames. So I approached Rocky and I said, why don't you let me build frames? And they were really skeptical because about a year ago, I was assembling these El, El Cheapo bikes and I became the handyman. But anyway, they sort of set me loose and they gave me 10 sets of tubing. And that's how I became a frame builder. Wow. That was back in 84. Uh-huh. And As in 1984. Did you, uh, had you taken like metal shop in high school or did you know anyone or prior to this in your life who, you know, taught you welding or anything, or this was a total like trial by fire, just, just figure it out? No, I had some background. I, I was in the metal workshop in high school on a really, on a really regular basis. I used to skip classes so that I could go to, into the, into, into the metal workshop and, I actually made my first frame when I was 12 years old. It was a little mini bike. It had a, a Clinton lawnmower engine. And so that's how I got started. And my father was a welding inspector. He didn't know how to weld, but he could fail 
a welder if they didn't do a good job. So he was often around welding sites. So I would ask him to bring home a, a piece of aluminum if I needed it or something like that. So that's kind of how, how the connection went. And I learned how to weld when I was in grade eight. So I was basically 13 years old. Mm-hmm. And that's how I got started. So when I I was working for Rocky as a really novice frame builder. I had quite a background in working with metal, not as much as I do now, but I knew the basics. I knew how to braze. I knew how to run a lathe and things like that. So it's not like I was an absolute novice, no. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and when I talk on the show with people and their stories and how they get started, uh, you know, there's a lot of specific challenges with bicycles, right? It's thin wall tubes and you want a really tight fit and uh, the alignment is maybe more critical than a fair amount of other welded structures. So I imagine, you know, getting that up to the, the level that you wanted or something probably took a little bit of time to figure out. Or, but I mean, you already had some background with all this fabrication. I just had to learn on my own basically because that was before the internet so i couldn't google anything and i didn't know anybody selling frame jigs i didn't have anybody i could really ask i started working with derek bailey and the first thing he he told me he just told me outright to my face he says i'm not going to show you anything so that was kind of his (laughs) attitude back then but i was working at the next bench over from him so i was just watching him constantly how he did things so i picked up all his good habits and i picked up some bad habits too which i had to relearn as i realized what was going on as i went through the frame building process Mm -hmm. so i still use some of his techniques but other stuff I got my own way of doing stuff like alignment, for example, he didn't have a, have a very good way of, of aligning frames. And so I I was copying him for a long time and I was always having problems. And then about frame number 300, I suddenly had this aha moment and I changed the sequence and that definitely helped a lot. The brazing sequence. Yeah, which joint you do first. I, yeah. I always I always braze up the head tube and the top tube first because that locks the triangle into position. Mm-hmm. It's not a triangle, really. It's a trapezoid. <laughs> so a trapezoid is inherently unstable. So you've you got to lock it somehow. So that's what I choose. I choose the head tube and the top tube. And then after that, I go down to the bottom bracket and I do that. So mm-hmm. I've got a sequence, yeah. Yeah. And so you started building these bikes for Rocky Mountain Cycle, and I think it was, was it 1987 or something? You went into business uh, for yourself with your own name, right? It was May of of 86. I I started up the business and I got married in the same month. So so everything was happening really (laughs) quick, really quick. And that was exciting, you know, to start up my own business. I was in uh, in the basement of a house that I owned with my sister, and I didn't have a spray booth, and it was the summertime, so when I needed to spray paint a frame, I hung a, a rod out on the end of the sun deck, and a hook came down under the apple tree, and I sprayed my frames under the apple tree. <laughs> <laughs> 
I mean, I think back now, and it was it was kind of wild and crazy, but it was definitely an exciting time. That's for sure. Yeah. Um. So, do you think that there's something about your personality that you're just drawn to, like doing it your way with your own business, like you're sort of like an entrepreneur type, or do you think the inclination to start your own was just like specific frustrations in working for Rocky Mountain, or do you remember what the impetus was to start Brody Bikes? I think it was, it was both, but a part of it was that I was working out at Rocky, I was a frame builder, I was a painter, I was designing new products, and I was getting eight bucks an hour and I asked for a raise up to 10 and they said, no, they said, we're not making any money. So that was, that was not quite the truth. Actually. It's just how they had the companies, uh, uh, set up accounting wise. It was a loss leader out there. So, and so the frame building business was never meant to make money out there because then, then the frames got sold from, Sherpa Manufacturing, that was the name of the operation. They got sold to Rocky, and then Rocky made a nice profit and sold them off to the shop. So hmm. I was just kind of frustrated by making eight bucks an hour for two years and having a bunch of responsibility and that. So it was it was time for me to move on and hang my sign out and make frames under my name, which at first was a little bit strange seeing my name on a frame and seeing other people ride them around the city. That took a little bit of getting used to. Yeah. Yeah, but sure. I got used to it. <laughs> it's a progression, you know, you, you know, I see my name on a frame and then I get used to that. And then later on, I'm, I write a book and then I start teaching. And so it's just, you know, one thing sort of led to another along the way, and I could never really see things coming up. Like when I started teaching frame building, I didn't see that coming up at all. I had my I had my frame jigs upstairs in my shop for five years, and I never touched them. And, and then one day at lunch, I sort of had the idea that if I saw my frame jigs, I could probably get $8,000, and I could buy myself a new Charles bike. So on a whim... I put an ad on, on Craigslist and then in 12 hours I had a response from Sweden, from Switzerland and this English, English website, I think it was Retrobike. He, he posted the ad on his, on his front page of his website. And so there was this suddenly this buzz going on and the, and, and the jigs didn't sell right away, but my friend bought them and he's in the sunglass business and he's not a frame builder, but he paid me $8,000 for the jigs. And then he says, why don't you teach frame building? So that's how the frame building school came up. That was not my idea. I had, I didn't think about that at all. It was, it was Brent Martin's idea. So it's interesting how life goes. You think you're going in a straight line. You, You think you're heading this way and then suddenly something happens and suddenly you're making a right turn, for example. And that's kind of how it went with the frame building school. Mm-hmm. I got no regrets, but I sure didn't see it coming up. <laughs> yeah. So you started teaching frame school in like 2010 or 2009? 
Yeah, in uh, in September of 2010. So ultimately, I did nine and a half years, and uh, I like teaching. It seems to suit me really well, but we've got the COVID thing out there. So if I was to teach brazing, I'd have to wear my reading glasses, my brazing glasses. I'd have to have a face mask and a face shield. So I'd have four things on my face. And I just know that if I wear a mask, which I do when I go out shopping, for example, and if I put on my glasses, my glasses always fog up. So how I would teach frame building in that kind of a situation, I don't know. So, mm-hmm. you know, the, and so the future of frame building 101 is, is, is kind of up in the air right now. It's, I'm, I'm told it's up to me if I want to teach. The university says, you know, we can do courses, but I'm also 65. I'm male. I'm a diabetic. So I fit neatly into that high risk category. So, yep. Whether I want to teach a class, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, I think that's fair enough. Um, I definitely want to talk about the classes more um, and the YouTube channel, which is also a, an offshoot of this idea of you know education and sharing the things you've learned. Uh, I'd like to backtrack some to the you know the early days of your bike company. Uh, I think I read that when you were inducted into the Mountain Bike Hall of Fame, part of the I mean, I'm sure you have a legacy beyond just the sloping top tube, but that's, I think, one of the things that's, like, credited to you is, like, uh, you know, in the in the old school, we used lugs and a road bike top tube and lots of bikes top tubes would be level to the ground. And then, uh, and then eventually they weren't. There was a slope to them, and I never really knew about the history of that, but I think a lot of people credit you as, as the person who really made that a, a widely used, broadly accepted form for the bicycles, the sloping top tube. Uh, tell us about that. I think there's some truth there. Although Charlie Cunningham, he was doing sloping top tubes on a really small scale down in California. Uh, and sloping top tubes have been around for the whole history of the bicycle, really. I've got a book called uh, a Bicycles and Tricycles. It, it's written by Archibald Sharp back in 1896. And there's lots of drawings in there of, of bikes with sloping top tubes. But I was kind of the guy who who put a sloping top tube on, on the local mountain bikes, and it, it kind of went from there. So... I was uh, how the sloping top tube thing really started. I was working in a in a bicycle shop. This is in the book, and uh, it was called the Peddler. And I had a, a conversation off of work with Dave Mullins. He was the manager at the time, and he was really into sloping top tubes and maybe smaller wheels on the back, like a, a 24 inch. And so we talked for about an hour about sloping top tube designs and frame design and that. And I went home feeling really good. Mm-hmm. And the next day I came to work and the boss, his name was Sam, he says, what are you doing here? And I said, well, I'm here for work. He said, well, didn't Dave tell you last night? You know, this is that whole conversation we had for an hour, sloping top tubes. I said, what? No, he didn't tell me what. He says, well, we don't need you anymore. <laughs> so, And so Dave was supposed to tell me that I'm fired, but instead we had a conversation about <laughs> sloping top tubes for an hour. So anyway, that, was, that really pissed me off. So I went home and I swore that I'd never worked for anybody else for the rest of my life. 
And it didn't exactly work like that because I was still the handyman around there and I was just paid on a hourly rate. And then when Rocky needed someone to paint and build frames, I decided that even though I had said I would never work for anybody else ever again, it was such an opportunity that I would do it. So mm -hmm. that's how it kind of came about. There's always a story in the background lurking. Uh-huh. And so the early sloping top tube frames that you were building were for Rocky Mountain. Okay, so how it went, I was building I was building Rocky Mountains and they all had horizontal top tubes. And then I thought I'd like to build a frame with a sloping top tube. So I approached an owner of Rocky Mountain and I said to him, I said, I've got an idea for a sloping top tube. Uh, I think we should build it. And he says, what do you want for your design? And so I thought about it. I was young. I was naive. And so I said, a set of tubing. <laughs> and at that time, a set of tanking tubing, it was $35. So I basically sold Rocky Mountain, the frame design, for $35. Wow. Yeah, pretty good, pretty good business. Uh huh. Uh, acumen. And and there was, what was there? I, I was reading something about this with your book or on your website, but you know, friction to new ideas is, of course, the way of the world. You know, there's some new bold idea, and some people will laugh at it, and some people will love it. But uh, what was the adoption like? I, I think it involved a. Uh, a racer having some success uh, on a particular event, right? Yeah, I can tell you that story a little bit. Uh, okay, so the sloping top tube is out, and I'm making frames. And at at that point in time, it's 1986, and the hardcore riders in our area are out from Mount Seymour, and they're called the Cove Boys because there was a shop called Deep Cove Cycles, and these guys were the really hardcore riders. They would ride up the mountains, and at that point, we didn't have SPDs and, and clipless pedals, so these guys would have road bike shoes with the cleats, and they would, sh uh, they would hold, the, hold the shoes in with the actual leather toe straps. Mm -hmm. So these guys were really the hardcore riders of the time and, and very well respected, and so they would say about the sloping top tube, they'd say, well, it looks like a girl's bike. How do you carry it? Those were the two complaints, right? Which maybe, had, you know, maybe were valid. And so Brent Martin, my friend, he bought a bike and uh, he wasn't sure about having the Brody decals on the, on the frame because nobody really knew who I was. And so he took half the decals off one side and he took half the decals off the other side. So one side said, bro, and the other side said, die. <laughs> <laughs> and so and so anyway he started winning races he got on his bike and he's a really good athlete and he was in really good shape and so he started winning races and so then it, it became the championship race of canada although mountain biking hadn't spread east at that point it was still in the two western provinces and in, in bc and alberta so he ended up winning the championship. He became champion in 86, and that really helped to launch the brand. And after he won the championship, everyone shut up. No one said it looked like a girl's bike anymore, or, or how do you carry it? Because they would, 
hold the top tube and put it on their shoulder. Well, when you get a sloping top tube, there's not as much room mm-hmm. as as in a horizontal top tube, like on a cyclocross bike, perhaps. So, so that's kind of the story of how the sloping top tube got acceptance on a real local level here in Vancouver. Yeah, and uh, so you know, of course, it gives you some clearance when you're bailing at the last second or something and there's there's rocks more standover clearance uh personally you know that's a big deal for me mountain biking gives you a longer uh seat post which absorbs possibly uh you know more flex in the seat post could be a more comfortable ride or something were these like marketing points that you were trying to argue that the bike was had functional advantages uh or was it partly aesthetic partly both like um how, how did you promote it I think it was both. I'm not an expert at marketing at all. I'm the first one to say that. And uh, But, yes, if, if someone wanted to talk frame design with me, I would talk about how there was a little bit more resilience in the ride and because the seat stays were a little bit lower at the back, maybe the rear end was a little bit stiffer. You know, it's just fine points. But for someone that's into cycling, yeah, it's. I think – it's all valid. Yeah. And so Brent, okay, so I'll just, I'll, I'll follow up on this a little bit. Uh, the guy that won the championship was Brent Martin. He's the same guy who, who purchased the frame jigs mm-hmm. in 2010 and said to me, why don't you teach frame building? He's the same guy. Yeah. So it's, it's, it was pretty neat how we've had this, had this friendship for so long and it's good yeah um i want to hear more about you know brody bikes you started a company uh how big did it grow under you know your leadership uh in terms of like number of employees or the size of the facility or uh, i didn't see a whole lot about that when i was trying to study up i know at some point you made an exit from the company and now uh brody bikes as the sort of you know bike company is owned by other people um i'd be curious to hear some more about that because of course in the handmade bike world there's you know tom ritchie and there's uh, all, all sorts of people. Um, I talked to Ross Schaefer from Salsa Cycles on this podcast back in March or something. And so there's a handful of people who have done that sort of thing. You know, they built a mountain bike company through the 80s and then uh, they decided that there was a lot more in the world than just running a small little bike company. And they, they sold it and moved on. And um, I'd love to hear, you know, your sort of experience. I started in the, in the basement of a house. And I had, after about a month or two, I hired someone to help me. And that was Mike Trulove. He became the shop manager. He he lasted for, I think, eight years. And I built up the company. The most employees we ever had at a time was, was, was 12. And I was wearing an awful lot of hats. I was trying to do way too much and not doing anything particularly well, I think. And it got to a point where I realized that things were kind of out of control. So I hired a manager and uh, he looked at all the books because he had some smarts that way. And he says, he says, on paper, you are, are technically bankrupt. 
I don't know how you keep your doors open. <laughs> that and it was just life. Life is normal, you know. Always short of money. Always, always figuring out how to make payroll. And so his name was Keith, and uh, he he set about to change things. And then one day it was our, our painter's birthday, and he insisted that uh, everyone go over to the pub for one beer. And uh, basically, at, at that point, the manager had worked for us for maybe three months and so half the shop went over to have one beer and the rest of us stayed in the shop and then as the afternoon went on it became obvious that the everyone was still at the pub so what had happened was it turned out he was an alcoholic which nobody knew all his references were spotless and he insisted that everybody stay at the pub so they finally all started to come back at about 3.30 and then when he came back he got fired <laughs> and, so that, and so that was the business manager I hired to get us out of trouble so wow. even though someone has excellent references there's usually something else going on so <laughs> anyway I, I probably digressed there so it, it was in the bicycle business, I was always thinking that if I worked really hard, I could get a little bit of cash in the bank and then I could sort of coast for one year. That was my goal, just to kind of have an easy year. But that just never, ever happened. The bicycle business only ever got harder mm -hmm. and more stressful. So in 1997, I had an opportunity to sell half the name. And that was sold to Cybersport, and they started to make a few bikes offshore. And some people said, like, for example, my lawyer said, don't sell half, you keep 51%. And his lawyer told him, yeah, don't go for half, get 51%. But no one wanted to have 49%. So uh -huh. we did go for 50 and that seemed to work fine. And then in 2001, I sold the last half of my name. It sounds strange to you know, talk about selling your actual name, but that's what happened. So mm -hmm. that was what, that was what, 19 years ago that I'd been out of that. And then I got into antique motorcycles and restorations and things like that. Mm -hmm. So that was, that, that was kind of my experience in the, uh, in the bicycle business. I went from one, just me up to, up to 12 and then right down to one again. <laughs> and <laughs> so I, Oh, go ahead. I was going to say, I, I definitely want to ask you about motorcycles, and that's on the list. Uh, something that comes up from time to time, before we touch on that, I'm curious, if you had it to do over again, and you were building Brody Bikes starting in May of 1986, I think you said, would you name it Brody Bikes again, or would you pick some other thing, you know, like you know, Phoenix Cycles, or some, some sort of, you know, thing that's based on... Uh, like a name, you know, like my business is Cobra. It doesn't, it's not Rogan Buck, it's, it's Cobra. And I've had this discussion with a handful of different builders about, you know, starting a handmade bike business can feel like a very personal thing, especially if the idea is, you know, the boutique artisan bike where it's made by one individual, but then it can be messy as you uh, continue to grow with that name. There are pros and cons to maybe having a name that is not your personal name and you've had that experience where you went to sell it and yeah what a weird experience to sell your own birth name to someone else some other corporate bike 
you know, sort of entity or whatever, and they're going to use it to, to sell their bikes that are maybe not to the same quality standards or whatever. You know, it's, it's kind of a weird experience. If you had it to do over again, would you have used a different name than your own last name? No, I think I would have used my name because even when I was working for Rocky Mountain, I built myself a frame that I would ride and I would race because I started racing mountain bikes back then too. And even though I was working for Rocky, I had I had Brody in in block letters. Mm-hmm. It wasn't it it was it was just block letters, white on red. And so it was it was a bit strange working for Rocky and having my own name on the frame even when I'm <laughs> working working for Rocky so I guess that was kind of a sign of things to come. Yeah. Uh, yeah, so no regrets that way. Yeah. I um, guess there was a bit of ego involved as well, you know. I, I'll admit that. Yeah, well, I mean that's that's life. <laughs> if you take pride in what you do and you care about it, it's uh totally normal. Um, so yeah, motorcycles, I'm dying to talk about motorcycles. I don't know all of the work that you've done that well. I've seen some pictures on your website. I can see that you bring a a high level of craftsmanship and, uh, and, you know, beauty to motorcycles and you, you seem to have done quite a variety of work with them. Uh, you know, you were interested in motorcycles from a young age, were you working with motorcycles prior to all these years in the bike industry or during as like side projects or uh, yeah, tell us about that. Well, my whole life has gone back and forth in between motorcycles and, and bicycles. It was either one or the other. And lately it became kind of, of both because I was working on the Excelsior project that I got involved with. That's a 1919 replica of a board track racer. So I was working on that in my shop and then I was teaching frame building 101. So I was doing both at the same time in the last decade or so. And uh, if it's two wheels, I just, I just like it. That's, that's, that's been my life and I've done I've done road racing on motorcycles. I've built whole motorcycle engines. That's the Excelsior, you know, mm-hmm. making an engine out of nothing. Wow. So, so that was a real education there because I had to learn about the metallurgy and how things fit inside an existing shape. Uh, yeah, it's. I just love motorcycles and I also love bicycles. That's, that's basically my world. <laughs> what well, um, you know, there's there's differences and there's huge similarities. Uh, the little bit that I see of you know the motorcycle world, there's there's a different emphasis than you know, like a lot of bike frame builders are emphasizing you know the TIG weld or the fillet braze or something or the lug work. Well, you know, motorcycle chassis doesn't really have lug work, and the construction method is maybe scrutinized to a different degree but then you know motorcycle builders are you know tig welding stainless and titanium exhausts or they're doing um they're doing like sheet metal work on uh you know making like a gas tank and it's just a whole different set of uh things but then it has a lot of similarities uh you know when you when you get to know that world of motorcycles and i'm sure you know that pretty well and you know the bicycle world there's, there's probably different perspectives, but then some overlapping. Like, what strikes you as some of the biggest differences and similarities between these different realms? 
one thing I I find interesting because when I was teaching frame building 101 and, and we talk about the head angle of a bicycle, for example. So if a bicycle head angle is, say, 69 degrees, it's measured up from the horizontal. In the motorcycle world, the head tube angle, <clears throat> excuse me, on a motorcycle is always measured from the vertical. And, and I've often wondered, you know, uh, because the bicycle and the motorcycles, they basically have the same origin. The first motorcycle was a heavy-duty bicycle frame with an engine in it. And I just wonder how they got that split, how one got measured up and <laughs> one got measured measured back. And also, in, in the bicycle world, when you talk about rake, you're talking about the fork and you're talking about the amount of offset in the fork. In the motorcycle world, when you talk about rake, that is the head tube angle, hmm. which is kind of strange. Aside from that, I think the motorcycle world, they're more interested in instrumentation, maybe the paint job, the graphics and things like that. And in the bicycle world, I think there's, there's there's more of an emphasis on the frame, especially if you get into the hand-built frames. Tell me about uh, some specific motorcycles that you've done. The Excelsior project, I believe I'm saying that right, that was, a, that was like a replica or was that a restoration or what was that project? It's a replica. I, uh, I was doing work for other customers. This was back in the early 2000s and a customer would show up on my doorstep and have an engine, for example, you know, like an old single cylinder engine out of the early 1900s. And often, often they would buy the motor for $5,000 and then they'd hire me to make a frame, forks, exhaust, gas tank, that sort of thing. And so I'd, wow. I'd, I'd, I would invoice them for maybe another, I don't know, $10,000 or something like that. Mm-hmm. And then, and then suddenly they had a bike that was worth maybe forty five thousand dollars, and I kind of took note of that, you know. And I, mm-hmm. I was thinking maybe, maybe I should do my own own project. So I went to a swap meet down in uh, not Idaho, Iowa, Davenport, Iowa. It's the biggest swap meet of the year. It's usually Labor Day weekend. And on the way back with a, a customer, we hatched a plan and. I decided to build Excelsiors because no one had an Excelsior. There is, is none in existence. I had some old photographs, and that's how the project started. So I started that in May of 2005, and I went really out on a, a financial limb. I turned away all my customers, Wow! and I started living off my line of credit and spending money at a pretty <laughs> good rate. You know, I was buying whatever... I needed, and and there was a kind of a freedom there, knowing that I was doing exactly what I wanted to do, and that's how the Excelsior project started. So I've sold, I've sold four. They're over a hundred thousand dollars. I've got more for sale, but things kind of have have stalled out in the last bunch of years. So I don't know where the project is going now. Now my life is basically bicycles, it seems. Mm-hmm. So, so that was the Excelsior project. I went out on a financial limb. That's very cool. So you, uh, you were building this 
entire thing in your machine and fabrication shop? Were you making like the engine block from billet and, you know, making the, the crankshaft or camshaft, like all these parts you were actually just making from raw stock? No, I, uh, I got a pattern maker and I paid them a lot of money and they made up the patterns and I had a foundry cast them. And then wow. the, the actual block, it got CNC machined and I, I did all, all of the machining on, <clears throat> excuse me, on the heads and the barrels and those things. And I made the frame, the, the, just so much stuff got made. If you go on my website, flashback fab, you can you can see the whole story of how the process went. Wow. So it was uh, it was quite a time because I worked on that full time, like six days a week for years. And uh, and the first three sold before they were even finished. So that was a real good uh, a boost for me. Yeah. And then the fourth and then the fourth one took much longer to sell, and I still have number for sale so if anybody needs an excelsior you could point to my way thank you very much yeah it, that sounds like an incredibly cool project uh to go that far deep into it to create this this thing um you know and, that that makes me so, yeah sorry and so also what i did is uh, i was motorcycle road racing at the time and i i had this aramaki road racer which is an Italian race bike, which I also made. And then it got stolen in California as I, as I was coming, actually Oregon, as I was coming home from a race. Okay. So I decided to build a road racer out of uh, an Excelsior motor. So I did that and I, I raced that for five years. And that's how the motor got developed because I'd go to the track, it would blow up, I'd come back, take it all apart, make the modifications, put it back together again, go down to the track, have more problems, blow up, <laughs> come back and do it all over again. So I did that for five years. And, and then I heard about a race down in Florida. It's, it's Billy Lane, Sons of Speed. I don't know if you heard of that. It, it's a board track race at the New Smyrna Speedway. So wow. last year I went down there. I, I took uh, I took number eight. That was that was my own personal Excelsior, and I call it Harry High Pipes. I, I like to name bikes. That's awesome. So I go down there. I go down there with a friend. This was last March in 2019, which was which was the hundred year anniversary of the Excelsior. Wow! And I go out on the track, and they open up the track a day early, and I and uh, I go out on the track. I do I do one lap, and at the end of the straight. Uh, as the throttle sticks wide open, so I had to leap. I just, I just let the bike go, and I crashed, and they took me to hospital in a helicopter. Oh wow! And so, and so that was the end of my Excelsior riding, I think, because <laughs> I ended up with a badly broken leg, so oh, I still no. limp a, li- a little bit, but I can, I can walk, I can work in my shop. I'm, I'm, I'm good. I'm just happy to be alive. Uh huh. So that was really unexpected because I didn't think that was going to happen. So that kind of shifted my focus back to the bicycles. Yeah. So. Um, so I have a question. You know, I don't know a whole lot about motorcycles. I know a little bit more about, you know, 
I know a little bit about the history of like the the flathead Ford and some other particular engines throughout you know the last hundred years. But um, what I talk about pretty commonly as a theme on this show is mountain bike technology has advanced so much, and the parts on mountain bikes have gotten so much better. And to ride a contemporary mountain bike with a dropper post and a really, you know, good damping long travel suspension fork, it's just, you know, good, big, grippy tires with tubeless, so they're low pressure. All these advancements in technology have made mountain bikes just so great. There, there's so many uh, excellent improvements that have been made over the decades. And I would assume there would be similar parallels to, you know, vintage motorcycles, that there's a nostalgia there's something very cool about the older ones, but uh, traditionally, you know, the suspension design and, uh, you know, just within the engines for like horsepower and, and all that, you know, you need lots of airflow and you need lots of cooling. And I would assume the inherent sort of performance level of these vintage motorcycles was quite a bit lower than modern uh, motorcycles. Did you, when you were building these and working with these, did you do things to address the design in subtle ways to try and make them more uh, like refined or, or were they fine in their original form or was the fun of it to ride something that was a little bit more crude or uh, how did that work out? Well, when I was building the Excelsior motor, when I was designing it, I designed it to be as as modern as possible internally, while the external shape was still looking like a 1919. So I used I used Carrillo rods, I used JE pistons, and 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 things like that. And so on my on my Excelsior race bike, I had a a tuned exhaust. I had a more modern carburetor. I had electronic ignition. I had high compression piston. So I, I got 71 rear wheel horsepower out of a 1919 motor. So <laughs> it would do a hundred, it would do 130 miles an hour, which was pretty respectable. Yeah. And so when I, I was building Harry high pipes, Harry high pipes has the old style carburetor on it. And, uh, I did put longer exhausts on it, so I, I could say that it was a tune exhaust, but I also had lower compression. So I got about 45 rear wheel horsepower out of that. So that's not bad for an old old bike, yeah. old, old engine. Mm-hmm. Sounds like a lot to and, me <laughs> for, for such a lightweight package, uh, you know, yeah. Yeah, because the whole bike only weighs, well, on the on the stock looking bike, it only weighs 250 pounds or something like that. And it's got 50 horsepower. So it, it definitely kind of accelerates when you crack it open. Mm-hmm. I, I, I think one of the things why, why people like those old bikes is, is, is the sounds they make. There's, there's a real roar to the motor when you accelerate mm-hmm. unlike a modern, unlike a modern bike, which is, which is much more high pitched. I see. Because the revs, because the revs are so much higher, mm-hmm. and just the and, and just the fact that when you look at these old bikes, everything's right there. You can see the motor, you can see the carburetor, and that on these modern bikes, you can't see what's going on. Usually, it's all hidden behind a fairing and plastic and molding and that. So there's a real sort of elemental thing about these old bikes. You everything is just right there out in the open. Yeah. And that's what I like about them. And I know a lot of other people like that too. 
Yeah, no, I think I would be drawn to that for sure. Uh, I've always been a little bit terrified of motorcycles just because when it goes wrong, it really goes wrong fast. You know, I had an uncle that uh, had a deer jump out in front of him. And, you know, everybody knows people, right? Uh, And even your story about breaking your leg. And so I just I just don't even consider it for myself because, like, I feel like it's maybe wise to my health. But uh, they are always uh, I just think it would I would have the time of my life riding a motorcycle for sure. They can be a lot of fun if you're careful. Yeah. <laughs> um, I want to talk some about the, uh, let's talk some about the frame building classes. I mean, you know, you told the story about getting that started again and you've been doing that for a while. I saw something on the website talking about how it's a frame building 101 class, not a 301 class, right? It's, it's, you have two weeks and it's sort of entry, entry level and uh, you, you kind of get up to speed enough to know how to, then continue later. And so, uh, yeah, like what, I mean, what is your sort of philosophy with teaching? You're trying to give people the groundwork so that they understand what they need to know to, to start building steel bicycles in their own shop when they get back, back home. Is that sort of the, the goal? Well, I think people take frame building one-on-one for different reasons. Some people are looking forward to a career perhaps, but I think most people, it's sort of on the bucket list. They just want to build a frame and after that, they don't have the time or the energy or the inclination to go farther. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of the, of the students who showed up had never held a brazing torch, so that's my first uh, objective is to get them up to speed on, on the brazing torch and for some, that's easy for others it, it's more of a challenge i my youngest student was 15 and my oldest student was 75 and he was an ex-surgeon and his hands would shake a bit when he was brazing which is not necessarily a bad thing but he was having trouble in placing the rod i'd have to have to have to stand right beside him and, and kind of point with a rod where to where to put the molten braze because he didn't he couldn't figure that out somehow and then i found out later that yeah he was a surgeon but he was a coroner so he only worked on dead people so if he had so if he had the shaky hands i guess it didn't really matter his (laughs) job (laughs) so uh yeah that's the first thing i i would do in in class is, is to get people up to speed on the brazing and then we would make the little baby frames because then the, uh, the student gets involved in using a very small jig and using the using the mill to miter and then the brazing torch to fillet braze and then the, the grinder and the belt sander to file up the fillet braze and then on to the full-scale drawing and then they make their frame. And it was a challenge for a lot of them to finish their frame in two weeks. It was... It was a bit of a battle sometimes. Mm-hmm. Uh, in 2010, I took a frame building class with Doug Faddock, who you might know. Uh, he teaches sort of a lugged steel road bike and touring. That that sort of, you know, you build a frame and a fork in two weeks in his shop. And I was very new to all of that. And, uh, and that was the experience is that it's hard to finish the whole thing in two weeks. And you, usually you, a lot of students are going to have some finish work left and you maybe don't have everything reamed and faced and chased and threads tapped and all that stuff, but you kind of learn the groundwork 
and you come away with something that you can finish at home probably with not a whole lot of expensive tools or anything. And so um, I think it's cool to, to, you know, with the people that I've had on the show who do some sort of class, um, it's good to bring out the details because if I had it to do over again, I wouldn't take that same class. And it's not because it was a bad class, but I just know more about myself and what I'm interested in. And I think for me, you know, I like TIG welding and I like machines and, and I like fillet brazing and I'm not as interested in the hand carving and uh, the handwork. I mean, it's, it's good foundation, but it's just not the way that I want to spend my time building bikes. And so, you know, there's different offerings from different frame building schools and you can, you can choose the one that fits your needs. And so, um, yeah, I mean, I see what you're maybe not going to be offering these classes in the near future or possibly the days of the Brody 101 frame building classes behind us now. But uh, it's a, I don't know. Yeah. It looks like a really cool offering that you have. It was good. I liked it because I, I would often learn because a student would come in and say, I'd like to do this. And I'd say, really, we <laughs> haven't, haven't done that before. And, and the student would go, I really want to do it. And I'd say, okay, let me figure out how I can make it happen. So there was a learning uh, for me as well, because I don't, I don't know how to do everything, but I know how to figure things out. So often, often we did things, and often the students would do things that I would say, really, you want to do that? For example, <laughs> one, you know, one student wanted to do, a down tube that was really big, say inch and three eighths. And then he wanted a top tube that was an inch. Well, I, I think the top tube and the down tube ought to be closer in size. Mm -hmm. So I said, really, you, you, you really want to do that? And he says, yeah. So that's what he did. And then after the frame got made, we all agreed that it's a pretty cool frame. So I would learn from students because I wouldn't think of doing something and, and they would have that idea. And then I would see it in, yeah. in, in the steel in, in real time. And I'd say, yeah, that it was a good idea. So <laughs> it was, it, it, well, it was good for me too. Right. Cause yeah. you know, I, 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 I'm not the guy that has all the answers. No, no way. I'm still mm -hmm. learning. Yeah, definitely. Yep. So lately, the last couple months through the COVID, you know, sort of moment that we're having, uh, you've been posting YouTube videos in your shop, uh, some relating to Unicrown forks. There's one where you're making a head badge, some where you're building different fixtures and talking about different processes, which is very cool. I started doing a lot of bike frame building related YouTube videos a year ago. At first, I was doing about a video a day. Then it was about a video a oh. week. Then it was about a video a month. And now in the last six months, I've done like one or two videos. So I'm not <laughs> kind of falling off now. But uh, I had a lot of fun with that and built it up pretty quickly. And I just, you know, I'm just busy with other stuff. And my shop is so tiny. I don't have a whole lot of room for that. In fact, to upgrade my CNC mill last year, I got rid of some of my manual machines just to make more space. And so it's kind of hard for me to shoot videos now. But uh, I'm ecstatic to see the stuff that you're doing because uh you know it's just really cool for people to have that resource and it's just fun to watch to see how someone else does it even if you know how to do something you can always learn by watching somebody else work um yeah i mean what what's your what's your plans for that youtube channel you, do you have any upcoming videos that uh you're you're thinking about well we started the videos 
I got Mitch to be my uh, a cameraman. He was a student last last year, and he was he just likes to do videos. So I approached him, and he said, "Sure." At first, I thought, "Who wants to watch a sixty-five-year-old guy make stuff in his shop?" I was a little skeptical, but then we started putting out some videos, and we got a pretty good response. So I thought, "Okay, well, maybe maybe people." might just might just like what I do so it kind of went from there and so far we've done one a week which sometimes is a bit of a challenge and it's interesting because I have to come up with the concept or the idea I also have to have the parts in the shop and the supplies and the tools and all that so it's sometimes it's a challenge so there's one week that this was a while ago I couldn't think of what to do and then I suddenly thought, well, I've got this old rocky frame and it's got a dent in it. Maybe I'll just take the dent out. So it was, it was kind of an afterthought how this how this video came around, and that's proved to be our most successful video. It's had something like six and a half thousand views or something because I guess people mm-hmm. are kind of fascinated with how to take out a dent because I guess not many people know or knew. So it's it's been really interesting because. Uh, there's the challenge of coming up with something every week, and 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 so far we've we we have 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 managed to do one every week so far. And then I was I was thinking about you because I think you've done what is it 91, and I was wondering what happened. Did you run out of ideas, or <laughs> or, or, or was it just time to move on? I so I, I was kind of wondering about that joe yeah well so you know i have a business that uh has a product to offer to frame builders and so i've i've done frame building in a sort of small amateur capacity for a while and i really love the process nerd stuff and i think i have a little bit to offer at least to other amateurs who don't have it all figured out yet and so i mean doing a youtube channel would be fun for me anyway but then as someone who has a product to sell, what a good way to establish rapport and familiarity with my customer base. If I make these videos, then just more of my potential customers are going to know who I am and maybe they'll buy stuff from me and maybe they won't, but that serves my interest. And so it it sort of helps me justify the time and the cost associated with making videos because it's very time intensive to make those and edit them and upload them and all that stuff. And so anyway, uh, I was doing that a lot, but yeah, when I when I got this other CNC mill, uh, I had a smaller CNC mill and I had some manual machines and my shop is tiny, but then I wanted to get a new CNC mill and I wanted to get a bigger one and I just didn't have room for everything. So I had to, I had to downsize some. So now I, I don't have, I got rid of my manual lathe and my manual mill. I don't really miss the bridge port too much, but I really miss the manual lathe. And so it's just a little harder to do the videos in that tight shop. And so when I move again, I'll buy some more manual machines, ones that I really want, you know, like a, I want an engine lathe that has a foot brake and some other features. And so that, that'll be nice. And I want to return to doing videos on a more regular basis, but, uh, it's just, I, I didn't, I didn't feel like I had such a good space to do them anymore. And, um, and so I'm focusing more on the podcast. I'm trying to keep that regular because I don't need my shop to be configured any one way in order to keep producing. But, uh, I miss doing the videos. I think also in the beginning, I would think, okay, I could do a video about 
you know, bicycle specific tubing and I can talk about butts and tapers and, you know, this is what makes chain stays and seat stays different. And I just, I have all this information in my head. I can give someone like a practical guide to all of that information, just talking from the top of my head for 10 minutes. That's a very easy video to make. And I just pull out some visual aids from my tubing collection. But then when you want to do like a build series, like I did, and I made a mountain bike last year, that's an incredibly time intensive project because you need to actually build it. And uh, I've never been a fast frame builder and I don't have every tool that you would want. So it's pretty slow and it just took weeks and weeks and weeks. And then at the end of it, I had spent maybe 500 or something on all the materials. And then I had to uh, put parts on it and that cost me another two grand or something like that (laughs) to actually build it up. And I mean, I, I can afford to spend it on that and I like bicycles, but it's just, it's a really expensive way to make content versus, you know, like a podcast. I ask someone like you, who's a giant of the bike frame building world and you have this huge legacy and all these stories and it still takes time for me to produce. But, uh, I think this is possibly a more valuable resource than the videos. Cause I'm not even that much of an expert when it comes to frame building. I was watching some of, of your frame building videos and, and, I guess we do things a little differently. Like you don't like to seal tubes and I do. <laughs> so it, it was, it was interesting for me to watch and, mm-hmm. uh, and, and to see that we just do things differently. I watch you put in a, in a bridge tube and you, you call it silver brazing. I, w- I would never do that. I, I always nickel silver. Mm-hmm. And so, so, you know, it's, I'm not saying that there's a right and a wrong, but every frame builder has their own way of doing things, their yeah. own process. And as long as the end result is good, then that's great. Mm-hmm. But there's a lot of differences in frame builders. Oh, yeah. And and, I, and, and, oh, go ahead. Yep. I was just going to say two things. One thing is that uh, if there's a difference between the way that I suggest it or the way that you suggest it, folks should probably just, unless they know better, just listen to the way that Paul says, uh, it's probably a safer bet. Cause I've only built like 20 bikes. So my understanding of what makes a strong and reliable frame doesn't come with nearly as much experience. And in the case of the silver brace bridge, uh, I actually, the next week on that build series, I cut that out and I TIG welded it in <laughs> because, uh, uh, I got suggestion from Adam Sklar. He told me, you know, that that'll fail pretty commonly if you just silver brace a bridge in uh the silver can crack and i said you know i've actually seen that once uh, and then i i caught it out and i did it what i think was a better way okay well good for you to you know to take <laughs> it out and, and to fix it well i'm you know i've fixed frames i've done i've i've made a lot of mistakes on frames over the years i i think the biggest mistake i ever made i was making a run of of TIG welded frames and I thought it was 10 frames, but it was 17 when I looked back years later at the records and they were going really, really well. I was really happy with the progress. And then I went to put on the seat stays and I knew something was wrong. And in my frame building jig, I thought I set the seat tube angle to 74 degrees, but I actually set it to 69 degrees. So I made 17 (laughs) frames with a 69 degree head angle. So I had to cut out the seat tube, re-miter it a little shorter and cut the top tube shorter. And then because the top tube was still attached to the rest of the frame, hold it upside down. I forget what I did exactly. I had to hold it upside down in the mill somehow to get that angle cut. Oh. 
it took me two days to get back to where I was. Yeah. So that was like 16 hours of work. So that's the problem when you're doing runs of frames. Mm -hmm. If you make a mistake, it's not just one frame you're fixing. You're fixing the whole batch. (laughs) So... (laughs) What, one thing that I like to do when I'm fabricating, uh, you know, in the era that I got up to speed with frame building, BikeCAD was always available. And I think it's just such a valuable tool. And um, and now I'm familiar with other kinds of CAD software. And so I guess if I had to start over, maybe I would I would consider other CAD options too. But I think BikeCAD is just really streamlined and user-friendly and I like Brent too. But anyway... Uh, the the way that I would kind of check myself against those kinds of errors is that I would I would miter the tubes according to the outputs from BikeCAD, what it suggested the center to center or the miter to miter distance was. And then I would set up my frame fixture according to the outputs that it said. And they should pretty much fit. You know, you might have a very... A uh, very slight amount of slop or, or or overlap or something, and tweak it. But like they should basically be a pretty good fit there, and that's how you know. Um, but you know, you grew up in an era where you would have been doing you know full scale drawings or calculations, uh, you know, with calculators or trigonometry or something. Like, how did you go about figuring all that stuff out when you would set up your fixture? Well, when we were doing runs of frames, because historically we would do runs of 10 frames which is i don't think happens anymore because most of the small bill is just do one frame at a time basically i think now but we were in an era where it was it was runs of 10 and i never used to do frame uh, drawings at all we just had a sheet of paper that was in a, a plastic envelope and it had the specs for the four different sizes of frames we would do so we just looked at the drawing and no, not at the drawing. We looked at the at the spec sheet, and angles were the same. We were doing 70.5 on the head tube for a long time, and 74-degree seat angle on the bottom bracket height was, I think, 11 and three-quarters. So we set up the jig, and we never had a drawing. I only really started doing drawings when I taught Frame Building 101 because the students had to have a drawing. Mm-hmm. So up until that point, for all those four thousand plus frames we made, <laughs> there was no, there was no drawings. We just set the jigs up, and so that's how I got the. See, because when you set up the seat tube angle, it's the smaller line right next to the big line, and the big line is every five degrees. Mm-hmm. So I thought I was setting it up right next to the seventy-five degree, but I set it up next to the seventy degree, and I never checked. Uh, that that's how mistakes can happen if i'd had a drawing because what we do well in frame building 101 what what we would do is to is the student would make a full-scale drawing we would we would miter up the tubes and would check the lengths of the tubes off the drawing and then we we would set it up in the jig and tack it take it out of the jig and the first thing the student does is to put it on top of their full scale drawing. That's how you know if you got it right. So that's the double check. But back in the days, didn't even have a drawing. (laughs) (laughs) You can see see how things have evolved and Mm -hmm. now we're getting smarter. So I'm just doing a video now and I'm, I'm making a, a, it's a it's a Romax frame, and and the Romax was the first model that I ever 
had as as Brody bikes. So I am re- recreating a Romax, and that's a frame that I haven't built for over thirty years. Wow! But I got I got my full scale drawing, and I got the front uh, a triangle all tacked up, and in the video we put it on top, and everything lines up. So it was great. That's awesome. Um, well, something you just said about drawings reminded me when I was clicking around your website, I saw like a, a like an engineer's technical drawing that you would give to a machinist for a aluminum crown for a fork that you would have designed, you know, probably 30 years ago. And uh, so it's an aluminum crown that gets machined and then I think steel fork legs and a steerer and, you know, you bond it or screw it together or something so that you have... A fork. Uh, what's the story with that? Well, that's the Gator Blade, and and that's a concept I came up with in '87, '88, around uh, in that time frame. And I just had an idea that if I had a crown, and I thought maybe I'd need two bolts on each side to hold in. There's a, inside the inside the inside the fork leg is. Uh, aluminum insert at the top and it acts like a lug but it's also what the bolt goes into because it, it gets counterboard from the side mm-hmm. and so i made up a sample one and it had eight mil eight mil bolts eight mil allen screws holding each leg in and and we did some testing and we did some uh a destructive testing on it and it, it held up so that's how the fork came to be and we ended up making about 600 forks. The story with the fork is we got all excited. I got all excited. We got excited about this new rigid fork, which I thought was well made. And so we went down to Interbike at, I think it was down in Long Beach in 88, and we got this brand new fork. Well, that's the same year that Rock Shark came out with the <laughs> RS1, which was the precursor of the Mag 20. So even though we had this hot new fork, all the buzz was rock shock, magnesium, <laughs> legs, and this and that. And so it took six years to sell those 600 forks, and wow. we only ever sold them at cost. We never made, I never made any money off the fork because not many people wanted a, a rigid fork back then, and now they've become uh, a collector's items, and one sold in Germany for 600 euros, which is $900. And I, I get emails quite constantly. When are you going to make more Gator blades? <laughs> well, it's not, it's not going to happen because it's a whole, it's a whole process. We, uh, because on, on the crown, it's an extrusion. So you have to order uh-huh. lengths and lengths of extrusion. And then you send it to the CNC shop and the CNC shop, uh, wow. It machines the crown, and then you have to have the inserts made for the uh, at the top of the fork leg. You have to have the dropouts for the bottom of the fork leg, and then you have to machine the steer tube. It, it's all CNC'd, so it, so what they do is to take a, a few thou off each side, so everyone is exactly the same, and then it just radiuses up after the crown race, and then the crown race is also uh, its machine as well. So there's 11 pieces that get CNC machined. Wow. 
So it's a lot of work to do it. And then I, I used to use a, a toaster oven that would hold six crowns because you can heat up the aluminum to between 375 and 395 and you don't lose the heat treating. So I would wear heavy-duty welding gloves and I would put six crowns in the oven that was heated up and I would I would time it, and I'd do I'd do 15 minutes in there, and then I'd pull out the crowns, and the and and the steer tube had the had the crown race already installed up to the right height, and so I'd pull out the crown, and I would I would pop in the steer, and you had to be really quick because if you hesitated on the way down, <laughs> the crown would grab the steer, uh-huh. and that's how the, that's how the forks got made. Wow. Did you chill the steers also, or just room temperature? No, it was just room temperature, but it it opened up enough because there's a press fit in between the steer mm-hmm. and the crown of a thou thou and a half, right in in that range. And so, so when you heat up the crown, it opens it up to maybe a couple thou larger. So there's just enough clearance, and as soon <laughs> as it's in there, it's it grabs right. So yep. it, it's not meant to come apart. And then that eight millimeter screw that goes in. Oh, so on the sides where the where the fork tube goes into the crown, mm-hmm. that's slightly undersized because it's an inch tube. So the so the bore or the half bore is machined to 0.995. So it's a five thou mm-hmm. interference fit. So as, as you as you pull the blade in, it forces the crown open just a touch mm-hmm. so that's 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 what makes it work and of all the forks we made i haven't i've never seen one come back so i'm, I'm kind of proud of that that didn't get any failures so. yeah well i can see how that could be a collectible piece too because it's just a such a unique looking thing it reminds me I, I knew a couple people who really thought the wound up carbon forks with the aluminum crown they, they had a, a sort of nostalgia for those but you know those are much more mass produced and made recently too and this is uh yeah more of a more of a unicorn in the sort of in the history of bikes <laughs> uh it's a very cool thing to to have one of those i think yeah thanks um talk some about the book i mean you wrote a book about your your time in the bike industry uh that's pretty cool i think a lot of people haven't even if they have stories they haven't taken the time to chronicle them uh if i if i realized that the bike existed a little bit sooner i would have read it as preparation for this interview and i want to get it now uh talk some about the book um yeah love to hear about it well, my sister was a book designer, and so uh, you know she had written a, a book, and my mom had written a, a couple books that were successful. And so I, uh, I had people asking me, "How did you get here? Like, what you know, what's the story of Brody Bikes, and how did you end up doing this and that?" So I figured it was time to write a book, and. When I started out, I thought, oh, I can, I can do the book in maybe a year, 18 <laughs> months max, 18 months max. Well, it didn't, from the time I started the book until the time it got published and was out, that was four years. So it's a lot, it was a lot more work than I ever an- anticipated. And if you like the look of the book, that's because my sister 
she was the one responsible for the design. Mm -hmm. And it's basically the story of how I got into motorcycles, mini bikes, bicycles, and all of the ups and downs, because I've been through lawsuits. And I talked earlier about how we had the manager who said, well, you're technically bankrupt. I don't know how you keep your doors open. So there's all those, all those stories in there. And and the and in in the bicycle industry, there's just a lot of personalities. There's obviously egos and different folks. So I think it makes for a, a colorful story. That's what I would hope. And I've I've read books where I read the book, and after it's over, I thought, well, you could have told that in a lot less, lot less space, a lot less pages. So. Uh-huh. I tried not to write that sort of a book. It's pretty, it's got 52 chapters, I believe, and each one's kind of a story unto itself and kind of fast moving. So Mm -hmm. uh, I tried to tell a good story. Yeah, I I can't wait to get that. And um, not only to read it and to, to learn about, you know, the history of your company and, mountain biking and all these different things, but uh, also just be a cool book to have sitting out on the coffee table. Uh, you have friends over, um, all that sort of thing. It would be a good conversation starter. So um, <laughs> hopefully uh, hopefully the people listening to this uh, are compelled to, to pick it up too. But um, anyway, um, I had another thing on the list too, and I'm not sure if you thought about this much or if you're very opinionated about it, but uh, I, you know, there's always a discussion about e-bikes uh, bikes with batteries and motors, and they're becoming more and more viable and cool. Uh, but then there's always a lot of Puritans who say, hey, that's not really a bike. Or, you know, it, it's it's very true that, like, for me and a lot of people, what you're drawn to about a bicycle is it's just simple. It's not too complicated. There's not too many things to worry about. It's not too heavy. It's not too expensive. I, I was really interested in single-speed and fixed-gear bikes uh, earlier on, and part of that is just the simplicity of it. It's It's pretty cool what you can do with such a simple machine. And so uh, you were mentioning earlier how, you know, motorcycles and bicycles kind of tie back to the same history. They just put a a motor on a bicycle and then they kind of branched off. And now they're these two different worlds. But I mean, I see the same thing happening now with e-bikes. They're really quite a bit of a different animal than a bicycle. Uh, You know, what do you think about that sort of, sort of like purist idea that, that, you know, bikes, shouldn't have motors on them <laughs> or something or what do you, you know are, are, do you ever feel like interested in in dabbling with that and you know making an e-bike or would you just go straight to a motorcycle i have an e-bike but i have problems with the controller or the settings and so even though i've had it for eight years i've never been well it's the story of eb that's the uh, electric bike I made for NABs back in 2012 and I went for my first ride on it and the motor was cutting in and out so I just left it for a while and then when I went to charge the battery the batteries were really low and it was lithium iron and I wasn't given the complete instructions that if it goes below half voltage you should never charge it because the chemistry changes internally I charged it and that was out at Frame Building 101 and we were having lunch outside and suddenly there was a big commotion inside and the aerospace students were running around with fire extinguishers and my bike caught fire inside the shop. (laughs) So it got burnt pretty good and it took three fire extinguishers to put the fire out. So then 
and so then the bike sat apart for six years, but it, 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 it's all back together again. But I've built other e-bikes for people. I built an e-bike on the on the YouTube series, and I also bought a I also built a long cruiser for this other customer. It was a hugely long bike and had lots of curved tubing. So I've built three e-bikes now. I think e-bikes definitely have a space because I have in in our, our society now because I know people that aren't particularly exercise minded, but they like to go out for a bicycle ride, and it it's great for them because they they can go farther and faster and they end up getting more exercise than they might potentially on a regular bicycle Mm -hmm. so i i think there's definitely a place and i know some other people who uh i got this other friend he's a trials rider and his his son rides for da vinci and they gave him a downhill bike to ride and the father took it over and he says this bike is just a hoot to ride. So mm-hmm. there's the whole range, you know, there's, there's the whole spectrum of the people that kind of have dismissed the idea because it's not pure as in bicycle. But I think there's definitely a, a, a place for electric bikes and we shouldn't count them out or dismiss them because for some people it's the perfect answer. Like I, I got a friend, he he he's got a heart condition so he can't ride a regular bike because if he did his heart would go up above the red line mm-hmm. and so, something might happen so for him electric bicycle is a, is is a perfect solution and and his his girlfriend has one as well so they go for rides rides together so for some people's situation it's great yeah, absolutely. That's that's how I feel about it. I think uh you know, you you could say um it pulls away from the purity of a bicycle or something, but uh to me I think there's a lot of applications where it's it's just cool to think of like what people say more butts on bikes. You know, I think it just opens up cycling to more people and uh I don't think most people just sit on an e-bike without pedaling or getting any sort of exercise or you know even people who ride motorcycles or especially people who are like racing motocross or something like that's that's a workout in and of itself. Uh but even if you're not interested in the exercise component, it's just, you know, it's nice to be out on a bike and going for a ride. Yeah, exactly. I agree. Um, also, you know, my shop that I've been commuting to for the last five years is 16 miles from my house and it's sort of hilly in central New York. And so, uh, I don't commute by bike very often. I usually drive and, uh, which is kind of a shame. There have been times where I biked. It's a lot of time. It's like an hour, 15 minutes or hour and a half at a casual pace. Plus I got to bring some stuff with me, you know, a computer and, uh, and some food and all that, some other clothes maybe. And then if I get stuck in the rain, all these things. And so if I had a cargo bike with a battery and a motor, and if I could just carry another 10 mile per hour the whole time and I could get there without being so exhausted, uh, that would make a pretty big difference for me, you know, to, to still be getting exercise, but to just have it be less of a hurdle to do the commute. And uh, I haven't taken the steps to actually do that, but um, I think it's really good that that's becoming a more and more viable option all the time. 
It sounds like you need an e-bike, Joe. <laughs> I guess I do. I guess I just sold myself. I remember working at a bike shop in 2013 or something, and the is uh, I forget the name of the company. They they had like a surly Pugsley fat bike with a with the the whole e-bike thing, you know, grafted onto it. And uh, I remember hopping on that for a second and just. You know, it just puts this huge grin on your face. You can't believe they have so much torque. And, uh, you know, that was like seven years ago. But that was a blast just to jump off curbs and stuff on that thing. It was, you know, those, those Surly Pugsley is not a not a sporty bike. Those are pretty heavy. And so to put the motor on there makes it kind of lively, actually. I think, I think that's the big thing with e-bikes. If you get a good surge of power, it puts a smile on your face. I don't think it. I, I don't think it matters who you are. It it has that ability. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, uh, I mean, that's most of my list of questions. Um, unless there's any other uh, topics that you wanted to cover, I would maybe just ask the uh, the big blanket question that I give to most people, which is, um, you know any advice that you have, you know, I, I think of this podcast as being directed toward people who are interested in frame building, maybe getting started, maybe they do it. Uh, advice that you have to people about, you know, major pitfalls or, or some of the you know best things you could do for yourself uh, in that sort of path. I would say that if you, if you want to be a frame builder in these modern times, you should keep your operations small. And if you can work from home and not pay rent, that would be a huge asset, huge, because the rent and the overheads and all that, that's what kind of, oh, it can drag you down. So yeah. if you can keep it simple, that's probably my my best easy advice yeah and not to think about how can i make another hundred frames a year how can i employ some people because that's basically the route that i went you know making the company bigger because i i always wanted sales to be a million dollars a year it never got there it got up to like 850 with 850,000 with 12 people working for me, but the stress involved and the headaches and the problems and the lawsuits and accountants <laughs> and just all this stuff. It was just, if, if I could have kept it simple, maybe I would have gone that route, but anyway, you can't change the past and it is what it is, but that's my advice. Yeah. I think that's really good advice. And I reflect on that often that I have found some very low overhead workspaces and I live in a city and I have an apartment that's very affordable. And so what I need to do every month to cover my essentials makes it so I, I can put most of the money that I make back into my shop or whatever. And I think that's facilitated a lot of the way that I've grown um, as much as I have in the time that I have is by keeping my overhead low. And so that's not that you know sometimes you need a bigger space and you got to pay for it or something because you stand to do more with it but I, I i totally agree that that's a really valuable thing to do especially with frame building it's it's just such a tough market um in, in the first place and so uh if you can keep your overhead low awesome yeah i agree Cool. Well, uh, thanks so much for taking the time to be on the show. I'm really excited to be able to share this with other people. Uh, I really appreciate your perspective. Can't wait to get your book and uh, see all the YouTube videos that are coming out. 
Um, also, I want to study the Excelsior more closely because that looks really cool. <laughs> Thank you, Joe. I appreciate it. If you if you send me your address, I'll I'll mail you out a book. <laughs> no, I'm gonna buy it. I'm gonna get you're gonna get the commission for it, and uh, and you can save yourself the hassle. But uh, thanks for the offer, and um, uh, yeah, stay safe out there through these through these trying times, and uh, I hope to talk to you soon. Thank you. Yep. Bye.